Welcome back to Renal Cell Cancer Update. After the tumor panel discussion, I met with Drs. Bukowski and then Dr. Dutcher to learn more about this fascinating disease and new approaches to therapy that have become available recently. Dr. Bukowski began by commenting on the lack of clinical responsiveness that's been seen with this tumor to cytotoxic chemotherapy. That's been an observation that has been a traditional one over the last 30 years. The exact cause, not clear. There may be some clues coming out of our understanding of the biology of the VHL protein and how it influences growth in kidney cancer, but it's still not clear. I mean, I think the fact is that we've known about this unique feature of kidney cancer for probably about 15 years now, and it's not something that comes out of the blue. It's been there, and it was uncovered in the 1990s, 93, 94, when some folks made the observation in patients with the VHL syndrome that their cancers and their germline cells contained a mutation of a gene called the VHL gene, von Hippel-Lindau gene. And that group of people gets clear cell cancer of the kidney. So it's really set the stage to try to understand clear cell cancer. And when we started to look at clear cell tumors that arose sporadically in the individual who doesn't have a familial history, it became clear that the same abnormality was there. Not in all of them, but in probably well over half, and that there were others that behaved in a similar fashion because of what we call epigenetic phenomenon that silenced this gene. So the VHL gene is absent or silenced in 70% of the cases of clear cell cancer, and that is what we feel is relevant in terms of the biology of the tumor, the phenotype of the cancer. Surgeons have known that this is a vascular cancer. Medical oncologists have recognized that. The question was why. Well, it clearly ties in to the VHL gene abnormality because when the VHL gene is non-functional or not operating appropriately, what happens is the development of a large number of genes that are related to hypoxia. These genes are meant to influence blood supply. They enhance the blood supply in the presence of a low oxygen tension. But in clear cell cancer, the low oxygen tension is not there, but the VHL gene, which ordinarily controls this give and take, if you will, of new development of blood vessels and so on, is. So in a very simple way, the biology ties into the genetic abnormality. So why is it different than other cancers? Because most cancers, you don't have this well-defined abnormality of one gene that clearly causes the cancer. In kidney cancer, that's there. So it made sense that as you thought about this cancer, that the way to approach it is to exploit that knowledge. Just by way of diversion quickly to the other non-BHL or non-clear cell tumors, are they more chemoresponsive? What do we know about their biology? Some of them may be. Some selected things like collecting duct cancer may be more chemoresponsive. But across the board, papillary cancers and some of the really small subsets like chromophobe cancers don't necessarily appear to be chemoresponsive. So the issue about the chemosensitivity, really you have to start to look at the VHL protein and how it influences the apoptotic pathways in the cell. It becomes a little complicated, but there are people trying to work out why these cells are that way. We often thought it was because they expressed to a high degree the MDR protein and the MDR gene, but that's probably not the only explanation that causes them to be so insensitive to chemotherapy, because a lot of cancers do this. Do they respond to some of the newer agents, the TKIs or the mTOR inhibitors, the other non-clear cells? It's not clear. We think that there are some sort of hints that there are patients with these cancers that have responses, but right now the majority of patients who we have data on have not had responses. Everybody's looking at this as a group because it would fit the hypothesis better if those patients didn't respond as well. All right? And the clear issues now are to try to differentiate the patient's 
who have clear cell cancer and the mutation of the VHL gene or silencing of it and who do not. And so that's the real crux of the matter, and a lot of work is going into this to understand are they different in their survival, are they different in their responses, are they different in any other factors. And all this has just been started the past few years, so it's going to take another three or four years before we have that information. What do we know about tissue predictors or response to these agents? They don't exist at the moment. We've looked in a very preliminary way. The easiest way would be to be able to predict by virtue of the VHL gene mutation, yes, no, response, yes, no. Nobody has that data yet. Because of the assay? Because of the assay, because of the fact that it's a laborious thing to sequence the entire gene and to look for the abnormalities. And so that's underway. It probably won't be that simple. It never is, right? We never find it that easily. So right now, there are no predictors. We've looked for other predictors in the tissue with regard to some of these genes that we talked about, vascular endothelial growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor. Is there expression in the tumor or in the vasculature predictive at all in terms of response? And right now, nobody has that data. Those are fairly difficult assays to do and to understand. And so we don't know that right now. Long answer to the short question is we don't have a tissue predictor at this point in time. Can you kind of provide an overview of the clinical research information we had prior to ASCO in terms of systemic therapy and now where we're at after the last couple of days? So I would put ASCO into two sets. ASCO pre-2005, because 2005 really was a turning point, although this year was looked upon as sort of the sentinel one 2005 was truly the first ASCO where kidney cancer became sort of a star of the meeting because there were numerous papers presented. None of them made the plenary session. Perhaps some of them should, but they didn't. But 2005 really sort of set the stage for 2006. I think you have to look at both of those meetings as providing the information that medical oncologists now are going to need to try to understand the disease and to understand how to treat it. Before then, we were really left with the understanding of the immune response in cancer and the immune response in renal cancer, trying to exploit things like interferon and interleukin-2 as treatments for the disease or vaccines. They seldom worked. They had a lot of side effects. None of us were particularly satisfied with that, but that's all we had. And we knew about the VHL biology and the abnormalities there. We just needed the tools to exploit it. And those came about somewhere in the early 2000s, where the, the drugs made by pharma were directed towards inhibiting those genes or angiogenesis, if you will. And that sort of set the stage. So most of the stuff presented last year and this year really have focused on those kinds of treatments, drugs that directly or indirectly inhibit blood vessel growth in tumors. And this year, the splash was really large because there were two plenary papers that were presented that clearly change the standard of care for the disease based on their results. Can you talk a little bit about the chemistry of these agents and presumed or thought mechanism of action? There's two groups. One are the antibodies. The other are the small molecular structures called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. The antibodies most oncologists know about, they deal with rituxan, rituximab, so they're pretty familiar with the specificity of antibodies. And one of the antibodies that has been used in renal cancer is bevacizumab or Avastin, and it was developed to bind vascular endothelial growth factor, one of the targets that's overproduced by virtue of the VHL gene abnormality in the disease. It seemed on the face of it that some of the early trials should have been done in renal cancer because of those findings. I mean, the paradigm was there, we understood it, but it was a disease which was still thought to be an unresponsive one, and people didn't want to get stuck 
in the setting of renal cancer, even with a novel drug like Avastin. But it was ultimately applied, and it sort of set the stage, if you will, for the rest of the things that have come. So after the antibodies, the whole tendency for pharma has been to look for drugs that inhibit specific receptors called kinases that may have some influence on cell growth proliferation, both cancer cells and normal vascular cells. And that's really what these molecules are. The two that were talked about the most at this meeting and last year were sunitinib and serafinib. They're both small molecular compounds. They're synthesized to inhibit specific structures. For example, the receptors for vascular endothelial growth factor. So Avastin blocks the ligand, VEGF. Sunitinib and serafinib block the receptor that is complex to VEGF. In one way, you're blocking the actual molecule or the actual growth factor by complexing it. The other way, you're blocking the activity of that growth factor by virtue of preventing the signaling pathway from being operative with these kinase inhibitors. In terms of the specific targets of those two TKIs, how are they similar and different? They're similar in some respects because they inhibit the same spectrum to a certain degree, that spectrum being the receptors for vascular endothelial growth factor and platelet-derived growth factor, but they're dissimilar because they have different strengths with which they provide that inhibition, and serafinib also inhibits a protein called RAF1, which it was originally designed to. They're what we call dirty kinase inhibitors. That is, they have multiple targets. In reality, when we look at all of these, and Gleevec is one. Gleevec was sort of the prototype and it doesn't only inhibit one kinase, it inhibits a multitude of kinases, as does the new drug soon to be approved by the FDA, desatinib from Bristol-Myers, another Gleevec-type drug for chronic myelogenous leukemia. But they don't inhibit just one kinase, they're multiple. And, and it may well be in kidney cancer that we were fortunate that these drugs inhibited more than one in a very powerful fashion because it then perhaps allowed some of the effects that we're seeing on the tumors to occur. Now, what we can't explain, what's interesting to speculate on is why the two drugs are so different clinically. One has a very high percentage of patients whose tumors shrink with it. The other one has a lower percentage of patients whose tumors shrink. And whether it's related to the chemistry and how tightly they bind to certain receptors or whether there are other factors that come into account here with regard to their pharmacokinetics or other receptors that are inhibited, we yet don't recognize, not certain. It's an interesting situation where the small molecules have reproducible effects, but they are very different at times. What would you speculate that would be seen if there was a head-to-head comparison of serafinib and sunitinib as first-line therapy? It probably would be done by the cooperative groups or in Europe, because that's really the standard of care question now. What should we use at this point in time? I think they would come out pretty close. I think one of the issues revolves around side effect profile and which is the easier to take and for how long. The other is which is more powerful in terms of its effect on the surrogates for clinical benefit, the surrogates being delaying progression of the cancer or improving survival. Because response, although it's important, is not the endpoint we have to focus on. It's not relevant to improvement for patients. It's more... I guess unless they're symptomatic. Unless they're symptomatic. But the vast majority of people aren't symptomatic. So we have to look at this in the context of, does it improve the lot of patients that are treated? And those are the two points that probably are the most important. So then you would predict you'd see more responses with the sunitinib, but progression-free survival and overall survival would be similar? So remember, we go back to what is a response, because that's crucial to this whole discussion. Is response truly a definite endpoint. So oncologists created this artificial thing called objective response to help them evaluate drugs in a phase two setting to understand which drug might be useful ultimately and which drug should be taken to phase three. 
the response data don't necessarily predict benefit. So we didn't really create those to help us understand which drug would improve survival, which drug would improve time to progression. And when you look at the two drugs, although the major response, resist responses are different, one is 10%, the other is perhaps 30 or 40%. When you look at the number of patients who actually have a decrease in their tumor size, a measurable decrease in their tumor size, it's very similar. It's about 70 to 75%. So overall, the same number of patients benefit. The magnitude may be slightly different in terms of response, but response doesn't necessarily control the progression times nor the survival. What do we know about sequencing these in terms of responses to one after the other? There are very few data right now about sequencing, but probably that's the way they're going to be used. I think that medical oncologists, as they start to use these drugs in their practice, will realize, number one, that they're simple for patients to take. They have side effects, but in reality, the patient can take them and still lead a relatively normal existence. They will experience some fatigue and some other non-hematologic side effects, but overall, in our experience, when we've had people take these for over two years and still work and lead productive lives, it becomes clear that they're very desirable ways of treating this particular cancer because they slow down progression. Now, unfortunately, they're not curing the disease, but they are slowing it down. So the concept has arisen, well, if a patient fails, for example, serafinib, why not then move him to the next kinase inhibitor, sunitinib? We thought on the face of it that there would be resistance, that those patients wouldn't respond if you move them to a second kinase inhibitor. But two papers at this meeting really suggested that that's not the case. One looked at patients treated with bevacizumab, and then they were treated with sunitinib. And in that case, it's clear that there were about 60% of patients who had decreases in their tumor, and some about 15% had measurable tumor decreases that by resist criteria. Also, our group presented a series of data on patients who had had treatment with one tyrosine kinase inhibitor, like sunitinib or serafinib, and then were placed on the other after they progressed. We found a series of patients who clearly responded to the second tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So it raises the question of what is the resistance mechanisms here, and that was discussed a little bit in one of the clinical science sessions, but the reality is we don't have an idea of what the resistance is because it's not a genetic phenomenon currently. These normal genes don't seem to mutate. It may well be a kinetic phenomenon or maybe an expression phenomenon related to overexpression of a number of genes. And I think that when docs in the community start to treat patients with these drugs, they have to understand that there is no exact duration of treatment that's recommended. Because ordinarily, we use progression of the disease as the indicator to stop a drug or to start a new drug. Here, although disease progression is looked for, we don't necessarily use that as an indicator to stop treatment or to change treatment. We have continued on in many of these clinical trials that have been presented at this meeting with the same kinase inhibitor in the face of progressive disease should the patient not have new symptoms or be symptomatically worse, in other words. The assumption there being that continued inhibition of the VEGF pathway is the important part, right? And if you take that inhibition away very quickly without providing another way to inhibit that pathway, whether it's a Vastin or another kinase inhibitor, you could have deleterious effects. And so some of these folks are receiving these inhibitors for long-term treatment. These are all speculative concepts. Nobody knows for certain yet what to do, and they're anecdotes at this point in time. But I think sequential therapy with these drugs is indeed something to look at very seriously and something that may be a useful concept. What about the combination of one of these two TKIs with bevacizumab, and what about combining the two TKIs? Certainly with bevacizumab, either TKI is being studied, and they're being studied very intensively because they have different targets, 
One is a receptor, the other is a ligand, and the thought is, well, perhaps if we combine them, we'll have an additive or a synergistic effect. And that may well be, so sorafenib is combinable with bevacizumab, but the problem has been that sometimes side effects are a little bit unsuspected, and you may have to decrease the dose of one of the agents in order to add them together. That has been true with sorafenib and bevacizumab. Sunitinib and bevacizumab studies are just starting. There are two of them in progress right now, both looking at the combination. I presented a paper on bevacizumab today and discussed the effects of single-agent bevacizumab, which I think are indeed there. I think you can demonstrate them, but we don't have data in a well-designed phase three trial with a lot of patients in it to verify that. So that the thought is perhaps combining bevacizumab which is a fairly powerful and well-tolerated angiogenesis inhibitor with a drug like sunitinib would be the way to go. No data on it yet being done. I think there'll be interactions that will perhaps require us to lower the dose of one or the other, unfortunately. We'd like to give both at full dose, but we don't know that. And if we can't give them at full dose, it may be a less than optimal situation. But they're going to be tried. They should be, obviously. What about the combination of sunitinib and serafinib? Some of their side effects are similar. Some of them are different. It would be difficult to combine both, I believe. From a toxicity point of view? From a toxicity perspective. I mean, I think you'd end up with half doses of each one, perhaps, although I clearly think it should be tried. There's another drug that should be in this mix that wasn't talked about at this meeting, and that is a drug called AG13736. It's an excellent drug. And it has the same effects as sunitinib in the treatment of renal cancer. It's only a small number of patients who've been treated with it, probably about 60. But the response rates, the drug tolerance, the effects are terrific. And the easiest way to combine drugs is if you do it in the same company. To combine drugs from a different company becomes problematic. Now, I'm not suggesting that the guys in practice give both of these drugs because I think I wouldn't know how to tell them to do it, what dose to use, what schedule to use. But I think if you're pharma and you have two drugs which both appear to have some very outstanding results, the tendency to combine both of them or to look at them in some way is there. You might do it in sequence. You might, you know, there are all kinds of ways to approach this question. So I think the answer is yes. We've done that with chemotherapy in the past, right? We take one drug and add one, two, or three drugs to it. Here, we think we like to understand the biology a bit more before doing that, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think the use of the drugs will precede our understanding of them, and the tendency to combine them, to give them together, is going to be very attractive for people. Can you compare the side effects and toxicity of sunitinib and serafinib? They are quite different, and the difference probably relates to the kinases they inhibit. And kinases, if you remember, are ubiquitous throughout all cells in the body, so you might expect that some of these drugs will have unsuspecting toxicities. With sunitinib, the toxicities that were discussed at this meeting were fatigue. About 10% of patients have grade 3 fatigue. Now, that turns out to be less than interferon. Interferon has the same amount, or if not greater, toxicity in terms of fatigue. But fatigue is sometimes limiting a little bit in terms of dose. These patients have hematologic toxicity. About a third of them will have myelosuppression, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia developing. This probably relates to the fact that one of the kinases that's inhibited is C-KIT, and C-KIT is on bone marrow cells, and so you expect that to be a toxicity. The schedule and dose that sunitinib is used in allows a two-week recovery period, so patients can recover there. Why was it designed that way in terms of what specific symptom were they trying to let the patient recover from? Predominantly fatigue. 
If you give the dose 50 milligrams a day continuously, fatigue becomes overriding and patients can't take that dose of drug continuously. And usually by the time they, through the two weeks, are they back to where they started? After two weeks, they're back to where they started. That first week, they start to feel a bit better. It does vary with cycle. The longer they take the drug, the longer it takes for them to make that recovery. So sometimes they'll even need three weeks to make a full recovery from the fatigue. Most patients notice that. So it is an interesting phenomenon, and two weeks generally is enough. The other alternative one has is to lower the dose to 37.5 milligrams, which is the second dose level for sunitinib. And it may well be that the lower dose one can give more continuously and you won't have the same side effect profile. There are other side effects for sunitinib that we're still learning about. One of them is hypothyroidism. About 20% of patients develop overt hypothyroidism while on sunitinib that require thyroid replacement. When do you start seeing that? Somewhere around the second to the third cycle. Really? In all of our patients on clinical trials, we have looked at thyroid function pre-treatment and then at intervals. Now, in the practice and use of sunitinib, my suggestion would be if you have a patient who starts to have signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism, fatigue, weight gain, whatever it might be, checking thyroid function is a pertinent issue, one to look at. I don't necessarily suggest that you look at it prospectively because it's only about 20% of folks that require thyroid replacement, but it's something to keep in mind that will occur. It is a lot. And I don't know if it's reversible or not. We don't have that information at this point in time. Normally, you hear about fatigue and it's associated with so many systems systemic agents, we don't really think about it too much, but is there any reason to think in any way this is metabolic? maybe subclinical hypothyroidism, for example? We've thought about that and looked at it, and certainly 60% of patients have abnormal thyroid tests. But if you divine hypothyroidism by high TSH and low T4, right. 20% require thyroid replacement. So are there other patients who might benefit from thyroid replacement? Possibly. We've not really taken it to that level. Any other speculation about why the fatigue occurs? Don't know. Don't have any idea. It occurs with serafinib too, but to a lesser degree, certainly. So just to finish out on sunitinib, if you had to sort of estimate roughly what fraction of patients say, am I really taking an active agent? This isn't causing any problem. What fraction of patients do you consider stopping the drug? Is this a big problem? So I believe you'll end up decreasing the dose in somewhere around half or 60% of patients. The other 40% can get through, but they may take it for short term. If you give this drug long term, just about everybody ultimately requires a dose reduction to 37.5 or 25. It's tough to continue at that same 50 milligram dose level for prolonged periods. We've got a few folks who've gone for a year to a year and a half at that dose level, but they become noticeably symptomatic with their fatigue. It takes them longer to recover. So you end up suggesting to them that the lower dose may be appropriate for them. How about serafinib? Serafinib is an easier drug to give, probably. Fewer side effects, fewer issues involved with it. Its main two side effects are skin toxicity and diarrhea, occurring in about 30 and 40% of patients. The diarrhea is not a problem. You can control that with low modal or low pyramide. It's a simple toxicity. The skin toxicity is generally what has required dose reduction. It's hand-foot syndrome, like the fluoropyrimidines, and these people develop some redness, tenderness, and that occurs in about a third of them. I think dose modification, probably in a third to more, because of hand-foot syndrome. And in the study that was presented by Dr. Escudier at this meeting, in which he presented toxicity data in untreated patients, 50% had hand-foot symptoms, meaning grade two or greater. It is an issue, and it's one that we've trained the nurses to look for. We trained the patients to look for it. Tell them that if you're developing any symptoms, pain, tenderness, redness, anything, let someone know, because that may be the first signal to hold the drug, to decrease the drug, because if you don't, grade three or four hand foot is pretty unpleasant for them. They have to make a call and let somebody know that indeed they're having this. So that's the main symptom. There are other metabolic problems that have been seen, hypophosphatemia, low phosphate, cause unknown. Now, maybe 
similar to what was reported with Gleevec in the New England Journal just about a month ago, where you're seeing some disorders of calcium metabolism develop with long-term use and also bone demineralization. In the setting of metastatic cancer, it may not be all that relevant to worry about, but if you're going to be giving these drugs long-term, if you're giving them in the adjuvant setting for a year or two or three, then you really have to start to think about what the other toxicities are at this point in time. What about other skin toxicities, a seraphinib beyond hand foot? They can't have rash, but the rash is usually mild. It's usually a little scaling, a little redness. There are some small percent of patients who develop an urticarial-like eruption that is puritic, that looks for all the world like an allergic reaction. And in those patients, it's not clear what the cause is. We've obviously held seraphinib in those patients and given them steroids, but when re-challenged with seraphinib, they do fine. So I'm not sure what the side effect is from exactly. Flipping back to sinitinib, can you talk a little bit about the cardiac issues? Important ones, and they observed in their studies in patients with gastrointestinal stromal tumors that about 10% of patients had a decrease in their cardiac ejection fraction. Why did they measure that? It was mandated by the FDA. Had something been seen preclinically? I think in some of their phase one studies, they had some hint that there may be cardiac toxicity, so they were required to look at cardiac function and cardiac conduction. Conduction abnormalities weren't seen, but the functional abnormalities were. And what's really interesting is that their ejection fractions may drop below 45%, but when the drug is held for the holiday of two weeks or three weeks, the ejection fraction returns to normal. There is a very finite percent of patients who have congestive heart failure, but it's quite low. It's probably less than 1%. So the, the cause of this particular finding is not really clear It's an abnormality, certainly, and I always tell people to remember that the patients that were treated on the clinical trials really were selected to have no cardiac disease for the most part. When we start to treat patients in normal practice who have impaired cardiac function, a history of arteriosclerotic heart disease and so on, we may start to see some different effects. We don't know that as yet. And I think in the adjuvant setting where you're going to try to give this drug for a year becomes a concern as to whether you'll see any long-term cardiac effects. Something we have to watch for. I think the risk-benefit ratio is acceptable at this point in time. I don't think it's such that it precludes anybody from using the drug. I think you just have to remember that this can occur. We lived through the anthracyclines for many years, so we understand not necessarily how cardiac toxicity occurs, but a little bit how to watch for it and you know what to observe in the patient population who we're treating. Any speculations about mechanism of cardiac toxicity? We don't know at this point in time. It's not clear. And for practical purposes in a non-protocol setting, how often do you think EF should be measured? And I think if you're going to treat somebody who has a history of cardiac disease or a risk factor, I would do a baseline and then perhaps again at three months. Just as a way of following that patient, I have no reason to suspect it's going to occur if it occurs in about 10 to 20% of patients and it's something that's reversible, fine. If it's something that's not reversible, you want to know it. I don't know. I'm not sure that that recommendation is also a solid one. I just think vigilance is what's necessary here. So I would do a baseline, though, if you have a suspect patient, because if their ejection fraction is low to start with, then you clearly want to watch them carefully. So you wouldn't do it in other patients? I wouldn't do it in other patients. We'd be overkill to do it in everybody at this point in time. What about people just based on age? Although it's a risk factor for cardiac disease, I don't have any reason to recommend it that it be done in patients over the age of 70 or 75. So I would go more by their history of risk factors in cardiac disease. Before I start to tease out how you would approach your patients in a non-protocol setting, can you also talk a little bit about CCI? I'm not very good at pronouncing it. Tuberculosis. Yes, something I'm working on it. One of those. CCI 779 is what right. I call it. So it's an interesting drug. It's a different target and inhibits a kinase called mTOR, and 
It is a drug which was developed as an immunosuppressive drug for transplants, and the formulation that's been developed to treat cancer patients was tested in patients with kidney cancer. The preliminary studies were suggestive of an effect. They weren't clear-cut. It wasn't 30 or 40% response rate like with sunitinib, but there were some patients who responded. The target was thought to be relevant because in an indirect way, it controls the levels of a nuclear transcription factor that ultimately results in the transcription of these hypoxia genes. So there is a connection between CCI779 and the kinase inhibitors. The study that was presented here at ASCO was a phase three trial in renal cell cancer because they didn't select for clear cell carcinoma. They did select for patients who would be expected to have a poor prognosis, metastatic disease, advanced poor prognostic features. The expected survival of the group was four to five months. And this was done in order to assess that group, in order to finish the study much more rapidly, because there was some concern by Wyeth that they couldn't do it rapidly. I think it was the wrong group to choose because now they're left with this group of patients. Is there any reason to suggest that sunitinib or serafinib cannot be given to these patients? No. I mean, I think they can. I think you can use them there and you'll probably have the same effects. But the drug CCI779 has only been tested in that group, and that's sort of what it's going to be looked at as a treatment for. It did produce an improvement in survival. The control group received interferon, and the group receiving CCI779 at 25 milligrams once a week had a median survival of about 10.8 months, and so maybe a three-month advantage in median survival. But it was significant, and it's a drug that clearly has an effect. We have to try to learn how to use it, where its place is in the treatment of this disease, We're going back to an intravenous drug, so it's a little bit different. And it's also a drug that has perhaps more side effects than the kinase inhibitors have in terms of fatigue, some effects on lipids, some thrombocytopenia occurs with this drug. What's interesting is it's another drug so that there are four new drugs at this meeting that were talked about in varying ways, bevacizumab, serafinib, sunitinib, and now CCI-779. How would you put those four? Of course, CCI-779's not available at this moment, but assuming it were... How would you put those four drugs together in terms of your non-protocol algorithm? So I think the data with bevacizumab makes it easy to put that drug into a cup and say, gee, it's too expensive, we need phase three data, let's wait. If you have a situation where your back is against the wall, the patient needs some kind of treatment, it's an easy tolerated drug, it's something you can use. But right now, without the data to support its use, I think we're going to keep that drug on the shelf a little bit, at least in my practice. I think for the untreated patient with clear cell carcinoma, you have two choices, and that is sunitinib or serafinib. Probably, given the data presented at this meeting, sunitinib is going to be utilized. It was the featured drug at the plenary session. I have no doubt that that's going to influence the vast majority of medical oncologists. And that's okay because the data are pretty solid with the drug, and they really show it's an effect on the disease. My tendency is to then say when those patients progress, and all of them do, that you should consider the second kinase inhibitor, serafinib, as sort of a drug to follow up the sequential therapy of this disease. Where does the Wyeth drug fit in, CCI779? Well, if you're convinced that there is a subset of patients who do badly and who have rapidly progressive disease, it certainly is a drug that one can use there, but I think we'll learn how to use that drug. So I'm sort of putting it, not on the shelf, but sort of holding it in reserve, if you would, for a group, because I think you can treat these poor-risk patients with the oral kinase inhibitors also. Are there any patients in whom you'd start serafinib rather than sunitinib? Yes, I think clearly that as we write about this phenomenon of what to use first, what are the standards of care, I think either is a choice that one can make. I think there are people in whom you can give serafinib 
who have you know, minimal symptoms, who you want to avoid side effects. The kind of side effects we're talking about was sunitinib, so that serafinib is a choice in that setting. I think the medical oncology community will start to use both of these drugs, and they will, for themselves, decide which of the two is the most favorable in terms of side effects. I think they probably have fairly similar effects on the biology of the disease, and so I think they can be used one or the other. What about the adjuvant setting? What's going on there? So don't treat patients with adjuvant therapy who have high-risk renal cancer at this point in time outside the setting of a clinical protocol because there are no data that support it. I think that we now get calls saying, well, should I give this patient serafinib or should I give him sunitinib? And I think right now we don't know. I think it's not risky perhaps, but you're doing it without data. Should you do it Is there a reason for it? Well, the studies that are going to be done, there's one study in the United States that will investigate this particular issue comparing sunitinib to serafinib to a placebo. I think that's an important trial. They plan to give these drugs for a year. I am not sure that patients can take these drugs for a year in the post-operative setting. I believe that it will be difficult to treat the vast majority of people for one year with sunitinib, certainly, and serafinib. A little easier, maybe, but still, you know, people after surgery like to feel good. They don't want to have these side effects, and it will be an issue. So don't use them right now. I think if you have a patient with resected metastatic disease, a little different setting, should you use these drugs? Well, there is a little bit more rationale there saying, well, there's clearly microscopic disease. Let's use it. Let's try to prolong it. There I could sort of convince myself in a certain situation, young patient, that use of one of these drugs might be reasonable to consider. I think that's a legitimate concern. But even there, I'm still a conservative oncologist. And knowing the natural history of the disease, which is quite variable, I will very often go to observation following surgical resection of as much disease as possible as a way to manage these illnesses. I'm putting out there a little bit of caution with regard to using them because, you know, it'd be very tempting to just kind of splash them all over and use them in all the settings. But I don't think we should. I think we should be more cautious. What do you think the key issue is going to be with each of these drugs trying to get out to a year? So with sunitinib, I think it's going to be fatigue. Clearly, I don't know that patients will take this drug because of the fatigue, and it'll require dose reductions. With serafinib, it's going to be some skin toxicity that occurs. I just don't think full doses can be given. And remember, one is continuous, that's serafinib, and that's the way these drugs should be given, continuously. They don't cure the disease, they suppress it. And the other, sunitinib, is a four-week-on, two-week-off schedule, and that's less than optimal. That two-week-on-off period was done to let them recover from the toxicities, but during that two weeks, there are patients whose symptoms start to recur, whose disease may start to progress in an early way. Not a lot of them, but that certainly can occur. So I'd like to see sunitinib come up with a continuous dosing schedule at some point, and I know that's being worked on.